0: Sacred Speaks. My name is John Price. I'm your host. And today I'll be quick, I hope. (laughs) But sometimes I just hit tangents I just can't avoid. So, first of all, today's guest is Dr. Marguerite Rigalioso, And two of her books that I have, I I read another one, but um, the first is Virgin Mother Goddesses of Antiquity. And the second new release came out on April 7th. It is The Mystery Tradition of Miraculous Conception, Mary, and the Lineage of Virgin Birth. She runs a community called the Seven Sisters Mystery School, and I'll include all the links below for you to reach her. I highly recommend checking her out, certainly if you're involved in anything uh, miraculous, uh, looking at the miraculous. So part of the Christian mythology around Mary is the virgin birth, and uh, Marguerite does an incredible job researching this. So I was excited to meet her. Brian Mamorescu introduced us, And said that she's one of the uh, high priestesses of the mysteries traditions. So uh, it was exciting to to read her work and to connect with her. So Marguerite, thank you for participating in the podcast. I'm glad to know you. Just a couple of uh, laundry list issues that I want to address before we get to the interview. Uh, First of all, The Sacred Speaks. Check it out at thesacredspeaks.com. And there's a lot of new cool things coming on, including a YouTube uh, series starting in the next uh, two, three months. So I'm eager to, to begin that. Um, the second thing is check out the website and look it up. If you're not, if you're new to the project, thanks for investigating so far. And you can check out all kinds of information that I have on that website. New website coming along soon. Um, the Sacred Speaks is brought to you by the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences. It's a boutique integrative practice. That my wife, Leela Scott Price, and I started. Check us out at the center for or just look there. But if you're listening, T-H-E-C-E-N-T-E-R-F-O-R-H-A-S.com. Uh, the music for the Sacred Speaks is from Modern Nations. Check them out at modern nationsmusic.com. And I think that kind of is it for now, other than a class I've been talking about for a long time. I'm going to be teaching at the Young Center at younghouston.org. Check that out. There's a link below to the class. It's, uh, the class is called How to Die Before You Die, and I am riffing off of a phrase that Brian Morescu introduced me to that he has at the beginning of his book. We're going to investigate his book, but also uh, look at some of the tendrils that this podcast has been looking at, certainly The Immortality Key, but also uh, The Road to Eleusis, the book by Carl Ruck. If you haven't seen that interview, check that out. It's the last interview I posted. Um, Dr. Carl Ruck is featured in Brian's book, and his story is fascinating and important, Um, uh, Dr. Bill Richards, um, Dr. Tony Bossis, uh, a number of folks that I have been talking to on these subjects of religion, uh, mystical traditions, psychedelics, spirituality, and the ways in which we can um, look at alternate states of consciousness to start to understand who we are as human beings and, and what we're doing in the world. It's kind of a humanistic tradition. So I'm eager to jump into this, and Brian will join us either the second or third class to, uh, to answer questions that people have in the audience or in the Zoom audience, and, um, and it'll be four Tuesdays. So starting April 27th, the class is from 5.45 to 7.15 Central Time. Um, click on the link below to log uh, to get into the class. You can join the first class or the fourth class. It's fine. Um, but uh, but of course you'll miss out all the uh, the funny jokes and the important deep dives that we'll take. Uh, uh, if we d- if I know we will I know we will. <laughs> um, I just had a conversation with Brian and I'm excited to um, to mine through this territory with him. If you're listening to this on on audio, there is now a YouTube portion to the Sacred Speaks. Go search YouTube or go to YouTube, search the Sacred Speaks, and you can be linked to the videos that I'm putting out. Uh, certainly subscribe to the page, like what you can. It all helps as it's growing. Um, if you're watching this on YouTube, you can do the same on SoundCloud, iTunes, uh, Google Play, Spotify. Um, the The podcast is out there for everyone to to listen to. Uh, but, you know, as you like and kind of subscribe to these pages, that it grows in its reach. So that would m- be much appreciated. And now we'll leave it there. Marguerite Mary Rigalioso is the foremost authority on the history of virgin birth and has taught graduate and undergraduate courses in both the United States and the United Kingdom. The founding director of Seven Sisters Mystery School, she's the author of The Cult of Divine Birth in Ancient Greece and Virgin Mother Goddesses of Antiquity. Her new book is The Mystery Tradition of Miraculous Conception, Mary and the Lineage of Virgin Births which is the inspiration for our conversation today. That was nice. <laughs> Thank Thanks. you, I'm glad you're here.
1: Thanks, so good to be here, John.
0: For for those of you listening, Marguerite and I have already uh, sat in meditation and silence together. So if you need to collect yourself for a moment, press pause and just connect your feet to the ground if you wanna get on our level. <laughs>
2: uh, so, yes.
0: <laughs> Well, good. I know. Uh, so Mary is, of course, going to be the conversation today. And uh, given the correspondence that you and I had, you know my interest in Persephone also. I've, I've just shared a conversation last, last week with Dr. Ruck, and we explored Eleusis, and that was lovely. So just to kind of position our conversation, there's no need to pick that thread up but just so you can know for the listeners that's kind of where we've been swimming around is in uh, mystery practices and uh, psychedelics and entheogens and all that depth and underworld stuff so i uh, i'm i'm eager to explore this i i've got a number of questions but of course i want to throw a pretty basic just wide net out there and as you said there there is a theme of uh, virgin birth and the goddess that uh, are goddesses that interweave through all your material. I wonder if you just talk a little bit about that and let's let's tee this up in a way that people can kind of start to understand where you're coming from and where we're going.
1: Yes, absolutely. And a natural segue between your talk about Persephone, whatever you discussed with Carl and myself, is that you know, in addition to being a scholar, I've also been what I call a practitioner of the ancient Mediterranean mystery traditions. And what does that mean? That means that I have done quite a bit of ceremony over Mm -hmm. the past 20 years um, with and without using um, kind of light level opening up medicines. Mm -hmm. And during that, during those journeys, um, I received that, The first, (laughs) my first goddesses were Demeter and Persephone, and that I was first and foremost, what you might call a priestess of Persephone. And the way that looked like in my personal life is that like Persephone at an early age, I was separated from my mother. My mother died when I was 10. I went into a long underworld journey, you know, that I think I've emerged from. <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> but um, and so those goddesses were were the first ones that I really tuned into as realities. You know, like oh my gosh, these beings are real. I went from being you know scholar and reader and hopeful. Like why am I so fascinated with this? To oh gosh, th- these 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 are consciousnesses. These are intelligences. These these beings have lives. They have realities, and our lives can parallel them. And mine, in fact, did. And the other thing that segues about Persephone, um, well, and so a lot of what I've been looking at is underworldly phenomena of this world and the and the other world, obviously and you know the darker side the more negative side um, what's it all about right so
0: well let me before you go there let me interrupt sorry I, you said that, you said real these these are real and I, I, you know when you've been initiated into a particular tradition our language really matters and what what one person hears when we say the word real and what another one hears are two very different things can can you speak a little bit about what it means for a god or goddess to be real?
1: Yeah, so you know, for me it went from reading about them as like fictional characters mm. to actually being able to communicate with them and to actually understand that we can live their journeys and their their archetypal paths in our own lives. So um <clears throat> They're, they are communicable <laughs> to use the word in this present time. They're, they're communicable, uh, beings, their intelligences, they're live. You can, you can talk to them. You can go to their sites. You can, you can just with a flick of your mind, be in communication and conversation. So when that relationship with the gods starts then you're really on a very interesting path then you've started opening into the other realms which have both its positive and its negative valences and persephone has both she's the goddess who knows the underworld pretty well and she's also the goddess of springtime so she knows the above ground she knows the hope all, all of that sort of thing and also she has a virgin birth story right as does her mother in, my, in my, those two earlier books, The Cult of Divine Birth in Ancient Greece, but especially Virgin Mother Goddesses of Antiquity, I really tease out this idea that, hey, you know what? That story about Demeter consorting with Zeus and giving birth to Persephone might be kind of a distortion or a later picture. I was discerning that Demeter was able to give birth to Persephone out of herself without the, the help of a male. And so you know how the traditional story of then Persephone's abducted by her uncle Hades and brought into the underworld. What I write all about is that Persephone was in the process of actually doing a divine conception ritual to give birth to the next generation, the next iteration of her female line when she was abducted, when she was taken over and when she was essentially raped. And and so we're, we're talking about deep, esoteric concepts here but this is starting us to go into the realm of divine birth through the Greek tradition and you know eventually we will we will lead to mother Mary but there's there's this whole background of divine birth that I discerned from my research in the first book where I was looking at not only goddesses but then their priestess representatives And what I realized through piecing together and going through many, many ancient texts, historical, uh, mythological, legendary, that there were these groups of priestesses that were able to conceive and give birth in different ways. And from the normal, you know, sexual intercourse between man and and woman. And that the reason for this was always because the nature of that kind of a divine conception allowed for a specialized human being to come into incarnation. One that would be very beneficial for humanity. And of course, the practice could be used to create negative beings that had sort of superpowers, but they weren't as positive as you know uh, some of the more be- beneficial ones. So we have this, these stories on the mythological level, but we also have them on the historical level in Greece. For example, our beloved Plato and Pythagoras were said to have been divinely born by their mothers. Okay, hmm. Pedictione with Plato and Pythias with uh, Pythagoras. And she, it seems, was probably a, Delph- a Delphic oracle. You see, so these oracle centers often were connected with virgin birth, And you find that by looking at the names of the places and the cities, oftentimes they will either be names of female priestesses who gave birth in a divine way or their names of their children. And this is all over the ancient ancient Europe, the ancient Mediterranean world. And there was a process by which this practice kind of devolved and was taken over and eventually hijacked by the patriarchal priesthoods. And then it was used, you know, for for different kinds of purposes, and and essentially was the entry point by which some of the patriarchal heroes entered in and started dismantling female-centered, balanced cultural behaviors and practices, um, matriarchy, if you will. So that's, just a little bit of a kind of a background. Um, and I'll let you kind of take it from there. Where where do we want to go or dive in? Well,
0: the, the first thought was that it's a part of my tradition is Jungian and one what's fascinating to me is that I've got on my desk a bunch of the the collected works of Jung, but I've got this book right back there called The Red Book. And it is it reads like uh, you know, whether it's Revelation or any, any stories in the Old Testament, one of the things Jung talked about is that you really need to turn towards these kind of inner figures and treat them as if they are real. And he wouldn't even say as if, he would say they are real, treat them as such. And we're starting to get a little bit of that in neuroscience. I mean, Whether you've got Anil Seth, who's talking about how there are consciousnesses in our, uh, in, 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 in our psyche, or Jill Bolte Taylor, who's talking about this confrontation with an inner other when she had a stroke, that the, the idea that we can we have this counsel inside of us that uh, inside of us that we can turn toward and interrogate because it's interrogating us is somewhat difficult to grasp given the current world view of what a human is and what psyche is and what consciousness is. So I cued in on that because I. I I think it really needs to be positioned at the outset which is our definition of real really matters here and and if I can be taken over by an impulse by rage by lust by greed by jealousy you know and and do things that I don't know where that came from I don't usually behave that way that that's just a hint at these other forms that exist inside and that if we don't turn to it and relate with them, then they'll act out in an unconscious way. And I think this is what this whole process of self-knowledge is about. How am I tracking so far with how you're?
1: Very much so. Very much so. And I I think there's, um, you know, we could, let's distinguish between ontological reality, meaning these beings have their own life, their own reality, whether we're here or not, we can tap into them or not versus seeing them all as inner parts of self which you know uh, on some of the esoteric buddhist understandings, if, if if i'm understanding this correctly is that it's all us right it's all mm-hmm. our mind it seems like separate beings but it really is all us and so it, it depends on how you want to look at it i have found a lot of utility in feeling like these beings have their own ontological reality that out there is Demeter doing her thing. I can connect with her or not Persephone, the same mother, Mary, the same Jesus, the same, but how they interact with us is they are helping us to cultivate the part of ourselves within us. That is like them or capable of becoming like them. Hmm. The, The part of us that is capable of becoming divine, like, raising to the level of a really high level master who is able to traverse three-dimensional reality and come into incarnation like Jesus and Mary, and who is also able to merge with the goddess and Godhead, which is what in my belief structure, Mary has done and Jesus has done. So um, that's just a little further conversation. And then in terms of like these experiences that we had where where we are saying to our we've had where we say to ourselves what was that who was that in my reality structure there there is a multiplicity of beings on the other side of the veil from our three-dimensional reality it is they are legion i mean more numerous than the drops of water in the ocean, right? And they range from very high vibrational to very low vibrational. And anybody who does enter into the shamanic realms in a, in a high altered state experience will come in contact with these beings, the good, the bad, the ugly, the intermediary, uh, the ones who are learning, the ones who are out to make trouble. And a lot of these beings do connect with us and hook into us the negative ones, um, and this is a, a big, huge discourse um, uh, about you know what's going on, who's really in charge of our body. Um, the fact that that okay, if if we do agree that there are these energies, sometimes called entities, then that puts mental health and remedies uh, about you know mental and emotional disturbances in a whole new light. And I have mm-hmm. always wanted the psycho psychological and psychiatric establishments to treat things on the emotional physical and spiritual levels you know and i've been trained in um energy depossession you know it's not a work that i like to do anymore i i give it back to my teacher But there's stuff going on, right? You know. So when when we open into this, we open into the whole wide world, and so these virgin birth priestesses are so important because these are some of the highest vibrational women who've been on the planet, and they know when they're in their doing the process right. They know how to incarnate a really high vibrational being. Sometimes we call it an avatar, and Jesus was one but Plato was one, Pythagoras was one, Um, you know, there there are other examples of of these high-level beings, and then there are other examples of low-level beings who came through this virgin birth way. For example, I would say Alexander the Great, he has a virgin birth story, Um, but this is a later phase of the virgin birth, where I was was initially talking about Parthenogenesis, the woman self-conceives, and then, boop, you know, the baby comes out. There's a later stage where she starts cavorting In three dimensional reality with a non three dimensional being an interdimensional sexual relation, and this is shamanically attested to worldwide. Um, Lewis talks about this, um, you know, there have been there's research on this, but what happened is these women who used to be able to give birth parthenogenetically start kind of consorting and getting seated by these interdimensional beings through a ritual. Okay, and then in a later stage of that, so in a later stage of that, we have a male who will come in and uh, incorporate that God through his physical body. So there literally is a human sexual connection there with sperm, and but it's it's the God's energy that's coming through that. It's the God's child, but because a male is involved they can take that child into the male lineage now. And so all of the female empowerments and matriarchal groups that, that once kind of controlled this practice are, are disempowered. Hmm. So, you know, the, the, the Egyptian pharaohs were said to have uh, been birthed that latter way. And as I said, in, in, in the Greek tradition, some of the more questionable legendary ones that came in were Theseus, Perseus and Heracles. You know, the stuff that we usually think of as, oh, you know, fictional stories, let's make a movie about them, they're not real. But in my belief structure, they were real, they actually existed. These are just, this, these stories are describing actual histories, those men were three-dimensional and, um, you know, they, they were born in a negative way by women who were intervened with by negative energies, namely some of the male gods of the Olympian pantheon. Okay. So it's a, it's a very complicated complex. We're sort of diving into the deep end of the pool, but Mm -hmm. I feel like you can certainly handle it. And probably your readers will, or your listeners will be, you know, kind of, listening to it at whatever level and maybe going back and maybe taking a look at my books and and seeing things but let's see if we can help them understand or tease it out
0: yeah because it brings up a certain binary that i think is it comes up for me certainly i fall into a literal versus symbolic interpretation framework you know and so i i noticed that when i i and it's all, it's all in question. I told a good friend of mine yesterday where I was like, man, I, I can't tell what is literal and what is symbolic anymore. And and so then I do things like in anticipation of you and I talking, I'm looking up parthenogenesis and trying to say, where where does this show up? And of course we can find evidence for that in various animal groups. Um, so I want to talk about that a bit. But before we tend to that, let, let's tend to this a little bit, which is... You know you have a listener out there that's going what is this hocus pocus this is crazy talk um how do you make sense of or understand that literal versus symbolic dynamic that i certainly get caught up in
1: right well you know i usually say to those people take two mushrooms and call me in the morning (laughs)
2: You know what I mean? And this is
1: where Brian Murarescu's work comes in because his book, The Mortality Key, you interviewed him. I yeah. mean, that guy is showing all the priestesses throughout time yeah. who have been saying, "Hey, people, these folks are real. These beings are real. Here's some ivy. Here's some mushrooms. Here's some henbane. Here's some whatever. Take it. Let's have an experience of them together." Let's go to the Eleusinian mystery. The Eleusinian mysteries was where they took the on the mm-hmm. drug, and they had a communal with like 3,000 people in the basement of that temple having this experience of like, oh my gosh, these goddesses are real. Yeah. Right? You know, my, my initiation really was through the sacred medicines. You know, I had I had a partner... Um, 20 years ago, who introduced me, he was he was my teacher, Robert Owings, he's got a book called um, The Call of the Forbidden Way, which, you know, in a way, Mm -hmm. is like an expose of all that. But um, when I first did my mushrooms, I was like, Oh, my God, these beings are real, like you just know, and things that for you were, you were fascinated by, and you were so attracted to, but you couldn't make that breach, you know, you couldn't, breach the realms right and now all of a sudden here you are breaching the realms and here they are and you're like whoa in your visual field but more than in your visual field they're in your knowing field and you know they are real beyond the shadow of a doubt now some people are able to do this without that like you're saying your beloved young you know, I, I went to a lecture uh, online the other a few weeks ago at the Jung, one of the Jung Institutes in Berkshire County or something. And um, I, he, I'm listening to them going, wow, because the talk was about Jung and entheogens and things like that. And I put in the chat, okay, please, like Jung must have been doing sacred medicines. And somebody wrote back, no, he absolutely didn't. He actually was against it, you know, didn't believe it. But he had that natural capacity, right? And hence, the Red Book, but hence why it was repressed from being mm-hmm. published until after his death, because it seems so crazy, like you're saying, it seems so crazy and wild. Now, so for a lot of people, sacred medicines are the entree to this. For some people, other means of opening consciousness, it could be ecstatic dancing for 24 hours, you know, Sufi dancing, fasting. Fasting is a a typical one. Uh, You will tend to go into an altered state. People who go on those vision quests, they're like, whoa, (laughs) you know, this is why they get the message about day four or five, because they have opened into an altered state of consciousness where the deities and the beings are real. Um, you know there there are many other methods uh for for going in and for opening expansions for some people it's simply meditation like they go into these deep what is it delta uh vibrations and they suddenly the veils between the world become worlds become really thin now also bear in mind that i have trained myself i went to a psychic training school for several years and then i continued to do the practice for more than a decade now of doing a running energy meditation, which opens, opens, opens your consciousness, your upper chakras, your third chakra, your crown. And you are thus able to get direct downpours of information that you're like, wow, this is truth. I know this. I don't even know how I know this, but I know it. Right. So intuition becomes alive. And like you were saying, recently, you're like, I don't know what's imaginal and what's real anymore. Well, guess what? The times we're in are fostering that. The the, the, the worlds are cracking. Third dimension is starting to merge into fifth dimension. And that's part of this world crisis. Um, you know, there are negative energies that are happening along with it. But on one end, it's creating a lot of awakening for people. as they- Hasn't
0: that been going on for like the the apocalypse is something that we've been writing about, thinking about, has been in the aware, whether it's the calendar of this that ends or the time of that, that isn't that a consistent aspect to reality?
1: It can be, um, but at some points in the history of humanity, it's more poignant than others or more uh, intense than others. And right now is a very intense note, and by right now, We could be saying the last hundred, few hundred or few thousand years, you know, like um, it's really intense right now. And a lot of people are saying that this is actually a pivot point. What we're, what we're in right now is a pivot point and it's going to spell one road that we go down or another road that we go down.
0: Yeah. I guess my argument in favor of that is that for centuries, the apocalypse has been in the kind of imagination of humanity, except right now we've got some pretty solid evidence to the destruction and devastation that we're doing to the earth and the environment that I, I guess is one of the first times. I mean, certainly you had war and famine and all kinds of other realities uh, that, that were um, very difficult to manage and catastrophic and tragic. This is interesting and different. And if it was the death of a culture, that's one thing. But the death of the entire culture of the world, because we've cut off our connection with the earth and devastated it, that just seems to be a little hypercharged.
1: Yeah, it is. And there are so many layers to it um, and possibilities around what is actually really happening that it might be a bridge too far to go into that today. Yeah, I hear you. (laughs) But um, suffice it to say, you know, the underworld is alive and well and doing its thing to try to get its coin, so to speak.
0: Yeah. So the a few questions, because I want to get into Mary, but I want to do our job tending to this um, this this material first. The one one aspect of certainly my conversations with both Brian and, and Dr. Ruck. Uh, and, and Amon Hillman, uh, were about the tradition of the priestess, pre-Christian, and the relationship of the priestess with the witch, post-Christian, I guess. Uh, and, and when I asked Dr. Ruck last week, we were talking about this collision of maybe the Roman Catholic Church, but maybe that is a signifier for another mode of consciousness, but, but when I asked him about what was going on with, you know, Christian, pre-Christianity, pre-Catholic Christianity and Catholic Christianity was, um, he said that Christians or the way were involved women. It involved women in the process, and as Brian has articulated really well, it involved women in the uh, presiding, presiding over the, the Eucharist or the ritual, holy ritual, and providing the sacraments. And of course, now we're talking openly about how those sacraments were um, uh, entheogenic um, consciousness expanding or whatever material. Um, So to actually have a religious experience was part of the process, not just to eat a wafer and say this is symbolic. That's right. So will you speak a little bit about priestesses, pre-Christian, and their involvement in religious traditions?
1: Yeah. Um... I think that, you know, what Brian has discovered and laid out is right on and it corresponds with all my research and the research that uh, many others have been doing about, you know, what were these priestesses up to. Yeah, these were the seers. These were the knowers. These were the guides for humanity. When humanity itself had had degenerated from having an open third eye open crown to see the other dimensions. These were the specialists that still allowed, they were, they were the conduits, okay, pre-Christian. Once Christianity came in, and what, uh, by, what I mean by that is not mystical Christianity, because at the very beginning, Christianity was run by the women. It was run by Mother Mary. It was run by Mary Magdalene, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera the men were having a little bit of a problem with that. We can see Peter reacting um, to that in a negative way. He was jealous of Mary Magdalene. But it really wasn't until a few hundred years into it, you know, particularly the Council of Nicaea, where they lay out the creed and so forth, that the male priests, so-called, totally took over. That was it. And you know, they started making men the only ones who could deliver the Eucharist. Uh, women had to be only nuns. They were completely stripped of their erotic connection and their divine birth knowledge because those virgin nunhoods used to be the divine birth priestesses, you know, which was a companion piece to being able to see is being able to conceive in the womb. You're conceiving in the mind, you're conceiving in the womb. These are priestesses who receive. And so, Um, And, you know, as Brian said, in, in the early, in Greek times and so forth, the women were the ones who were picking the plants, mixing the brews and giving it to the people to have these religious experiences. Again, there was an energy that came into Christianity a few hundred years into it that put the clamp on everything. And there's been a lot of talk in esoteric realms about what those energies were. That again, I think might be a bridge too far for (laughs) listeners here, but you know, you can, there's other people you can listen to about that. Um, But let's just call it patriarchy for simplicity's sake. Mm -hmm. But I will just say that it involves some of those negative beings that I've been talking to you about. Okay. The points of light and the pods and pools of light on the planet get taken over by the negatives. And one by one, these things get hijacked and taken over, whether it's the women's wisdom tradition with the medicines to help people open up, whether it's the divine birth practice, whether it's gurus who have this kind of knowledge and that kind of knowledge, and all of a sudden they get taken over and hijacked and they're sleeping with their students and having Rolls Royces and things like that. Okay. These negative energies that are alive and well in and around planet earth. Yeah. that? hello. Um, they, you know, they're active. Okay. They're active. They're active. And this is why we have had a Jesus come into the world. This is why mother Mary was like, Hey, Holy gosh this earth plane is in trouble. We have got to do something now. And this is, you know, 2000 years ago or so, she was already part of a family. She was part of a lineage of women who still were somehow managing to maintain this wisdom tradition as seers, as medicine women, as divine birthers. And she was such a high level being that she was able to bring in the likes of Jesus to help this planet. He's not the first, he's not the last, but he's a major, major one who was supposed to come here to help us. Of course, in the illusion that that will be taken over immediately as well. And so it got twisted and turned around. So now we have dogmatic, abusive Christianity, And underneath it is still that mystical tradition, you know, that a lot of people are talking about and and working with and still connecting with. And so it's a very mixed bag.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, it is. So you're starting to move into Mary there, and I think that's important to do so, because my my thought as you were talking was that in the narrative that many people know of Christianity, Mary is a pretty small part. She plays a small role, but in reading your work, you're positioning her as um, a more central figure. And of, of course being the, the one who gave birth to this powerful figure that was needing to come at that time. So would you give us a little background on why Mary is a much larger player in the narrative than? And so sorry, follow up question is, and how she became uh, the smaller character that we know her as today uh, in right. general.
1: Well, let's start with how she became a smaller character, because that's kind of like our entry point. Great. The canonical gospels, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John say very little about her. The Quran actually says more about her in Islam than, than those gospels. Where we find, and that was, I believe, deliberate. Again, part of this campaign to disempower women and make them really small. Now, Christianity has always had a little embarrassing fact that they couldn't get away from, which is that their um, symbol, Jesus, that they then came and used for various purposes, including, you know, (laughs) his message got distorted, right? They could never get away from the fact of how he came onto the planet which was through a divine birth priestess who willed it, planned it, was part of a lineage, et cetera. That is a very uncomfortable fact to, again, let's call it patriarchy. And so they did everything they could to diminish her in the, ca- the Christian religion, writing her out of the official canonical gospels, Calling any other texts that were written about her, and there were a, new, a number of them. One of which is what I base my book on, the Infancy Gospel of James. Calling those apocryphal, saying that they're absurd, saying that they're not authentic, you know, saying that they're not real. But there are other there are biographies of Mary, um, Maximus the Confessor, his l- Life of the Virgin. You know, there are other ones. So. If you look in those neighboring kinds of texts, you can see where who, who Mary is and, and where she came from and, and the much bigger picture. So in this particular book, I focus on that infancy gospel of James, which originally was called the birth of Mary. Okay, because mm-hmm. it's really all about her infancy gospel, not James's infancy gospel. Okay, this is another thing. Scholars twist it around and obscure the name of Mary and the fact that it's about her birth and childhood and and adolescence, you know, coming into divine birth priestesshood-ness and they call it infancy gospel of James. So nobody ever looks at it. They're like, oh, whatever that is, you know. So I rummaged around and, you know, found this thing and I'm like, wow, all of the codes and descriptions and symbols here completely correspond with all the research that I did in ancient Greece about how these priestesses did it, the practices, the symbols, the you know, the stages and all that. So that's what this new book, The Mystery Tradition of Miraculous Conception, Mary and the Lineage of Virgin Births, is all about. It is my analysis of this infancy gospel where all the mother load of information is about Mary how she was born, who her parents were, what her childhood training was, her time in the temple, her conception of Jesus, and then the story of her giving birth to Jesus and then being on the run. Okay, it goes through that. Um, So I I have unpacked all of this, and I've connected it all with what I know from ancient Greece, what I know from ancient Iraq and, you know, Sumer, etc. So this is a big opening about mother Mary. I mean, it's the implications are enormous, John, you know, in the way that, I mean, mm-hmm. are you familiar with the opening that's happened about Mary Magdalene over the mm-hmm. past two decades? Yeah. This is the beginning of mother Mary's opening reclamation. Okay. We've, we have we went through Mary Magdalene. There have been any, everyone from channelers to scholars writing about mary magdalene her gospels her reality what was her real relationship to jesus how she was a really powerful priestess etc so okay mary magdalene it was a little easier for us to swallow because she was more like connected to humans and mother mary always seemed way far away from us like an untouchable but what i'm starting to bring forth is mother mary as a very advanced human master who was actually at the end of her life, able to transcend her human status and ontologically change into divine status, okay? Through what she accomplished here and her ritual death. And some of that material is gonna be in my next book, you know, that will probably come out next year. So I'm applying a scholarly lens and all the background research, the tremendous research that I did on divine birth in ancient Greece, to Mary's gospel and I'm able to unearth and shine the light on much of what happened to her.
0: What what was the, fantastic by the way, and what was the process of becoming a priestess?
1: So um, it depends on where and when. So f- focus me somewhere, whether would it be Mary or would it be the Greek priestesses or... Uh, uh,
0: both either, you know, I, I think that, well, maybe there's even a way to back that up further and say that the, the, yeah, let's, let's maybe, you tell me if we can go here first or not, but uh, the mysteries, when people talk about the mysteries, what are they talking about?
1: Right. Well, that comes from a word that means to, to close, right? To close the mouth or something like that. Um Because it it has to do with things that shouldn't be spoken and and moreover can't be spoken because you cannot necessarily understand it with linear three-dimensional thinking. You can only understand it when you enter into the open state of consciousness and and the more what I call fifth dimensional awareness and so forth. So it's about connecting with the other world, the world beyond just this 3D realm, the world of spirit. And I would say to address your question in the most basic way of how were these women trained, I would say through lineages, that's the thing. It wasn't just, you know, like me, (laughs) I was born in the Bronx, you know, and all of a sudden I found a few people who influenced me and then I'm like, Hey, I'm on the priestess path. No, these women, yeah, because we have broken lineages. Yeah. All right. But interestingly, what I found is when I look back into my lineage, what did I discover? my great grandfather in Sicily was the town healer. Okay, I have lineage, you know, it just, it was broken. And of course, in his regard, it would have been deeply syncretized and Catholicized, you Mm -hmm. know, Um, but uh, these people were trained in successive lineages by their mothers, by their grandmothers, right, by their aunts. So that was the main thing. It was it was kind of in their blood. It was in their family. You know, they saw it all around them. They saw what was happening. They learned from a very early age what to do. Now, as it became a, quote, profession in ancient Greece, then there were more, already the breakage was starting to happen. And there, there had to be kinds of temple trainings and things like that. And they were retrieving these girls from the countryside or retrieving these elder women from the countryside. And you know but presumably there was there was an education that would happen within the temple and so forth so with mary we have the evidence for both because she was born into a lineage of women who were seers and divine birth priestesses because mary was divinely born of her mother anne and that is what her gospel the birth of mary aka infancy gospel of james tells us mary was divinely born by her mother, Anne, parthenogenetically born by Anne, Hannah, okay? While her husband, Joachim, was away in the desert, okay? And that's a whole story about Anne, but she had been a lifelong virgin birth priestess who was trying and trying to have this pregnancy. she was in her elder years, it wasn't happening. And finally, she and Joachim got really serious and she's like, this has to happen. And so the gospel opens basically with her going to the laurel tree, which is, you know, a symbol of the ancient oracular sites like at Delphi and having a divine conception happen there, happen there. But I decode of what are, what all the steps were that she had to do to get that conception to happen. And then what we see is that Mary then from infancy is trained. Okay. She cannot be, she cannot walk on the floor. You know, her mother takes her in to raise her as an infant in her room. She can never put her feet on the floor. If, if she does, there has to be a rug or, you know, something under there. Um, and then when Anne has the priestesses of the Hebrew temple, yes, the Hebrew temple come in and do things with Mary when from you know from the time she is an infant until she's three years old they're training her they're prepping her they're Mm -hmm. probably giving her they might be giving her even medicines they're probably purifying her in different ways teaching her things and then when she's three she's given over to the temple and then presumably those same priestesses raise her in the temple environment from there so there's training there's lineage That's how it happens. There may be the use of sacred medicines in this training to open consciousness. And though, you know, with somebody like Mary, who I think was so open coming into this lifetime after, in my belief structure, many, many lifetimes of having incarnated, she was very, very wise and advanced. Then she already had such a keen and strong opening. And that's why she was able to bring forth a particularly high vibrational avatar through her body, namely Jesus.
0: Yeah, I guess the thing that I'm thinking about also is this mother-daughter connection when it comes to you know the question around who kind of fathered a child, and you made a comment in your book about, you know, when a a woman gives birth to a child, there's no question. And so there is certainly a a, a line there that's that's pretty obvious. And when you then talk about the way that men are initiated and the ways that women are initiated, there are obvious differences, but but what we tend to do is project our current culture onto a back then. And and so I'm I'm wondering what we when you teach this and through your through your education what are what are our blind spots because of the zeitgeist? You know our current what Jung called spirit of the times. What do we tend to miss?
1: Well, you know, I, I think going back to the beginning of our conversation, we tend to miss the fact that there is another world that's parallel to this one. You know, the, those we've been so clamped down, um, and the lines have been so strongly drawn. And we've continued to be plied with things that will keep us dumbed down and not awake. You know, our pharmaceuticals, our our forms of food now, right, are being completely always online, out of nature, which also can get us into these open states of consciousness. Mm -hmm. That's our main uh, blind spot. You know, in another culture, they would have never even said, Are the gods real? I mean, they would be laughing. That's like, it wouldn't even be a conversation because it's like, Of course they are. We're dealing with them every day. We're in communication with them through ritual. We're in communication with them in medicine. We're in communication with them in our dreams. Um, they don't take away our problems, but they help us with them. And sometimes, if they're negative beings, they're creating more problems and we have to deal with it. So, I would say that's the biggest blind spot really and then the other blind spot is you know in the scholarly world the scholars generally don't know what to do with anything that has to do with evidence of sexuality in the ancient world and so and 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 this The religion um programmed religion has done the same thing so that you know one of the things i talk about in my new book is that mary's experience of divine conception was a profoundly erotic situation it was not it had kundalini fire Hmm. connected to it and i i talk about you know my evidence to make that case so that's one thing. Um, another thing that, that they miss is they miss the whole point of the whole Eleusinian Mysteries, which I decoded it in my book, uh, Virgin Mother Goddesses of Antiquity. Half the book is dedicated to the analysis of what happened at the Eleusinian Mysteries. It has been crickets from the, from the, from the scholarly world. Um, well, you're, and- you're
0: part of the lucky ones then, because a lot right, of people have been right. kicked out of the tribe. <laughs>
1: You know, and I kicked myself out before I, you know, whatever. But, you know, what is it that I say there? I basically say that at the apex of the Eleusinian mysteries, the initiates had to go through every single experience that the gods did and the goddesses did. So what is that experience? They had to experience Demeter losing her daughter. They had to experience Persephone being raped. So they had to experience that erotic encounter as the opening into the underworld. And that there were dildos used. Yeah,
0: that's where I was about to go. Yeah. Okay,
1: there were dildos used and 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 those dildos come into all the descriptions and they're, you know, but scholars have never known how to deal with that. And even colleagues that I've had that, that had a kind of a like, um, you know, fairy tale version of of Demeter and Persephone you know they they got Mm -hmm. so incensed when they heard that I posed this that this was the Eleusinian mysteries that people had to go through like a self-induced rape to experience what Persephone went through and that it was like a kind of a highly charged sort of erotic experience I mean they don't know what to do with that you know but this is the you know these are the kinds of blind spots when we when we look at this stuff and I didn't go expecting to find that. I didn't go with an agenda. I'm going to look for the sex in, you know, whatever the heck. It just emerged like, oh my gosh, you know, like you put all these things on the table, you start connecting the dots and you say, oh my God, I I have to believe myself in my own conclusion here, right? So there's a lot of hot and intense stuff that went on in antiquity. And that continues to go on for anybody who goes into a shamanic state. You know, I have clients all the time who are telling me about sexual encounters they've had with disembodied beings, et cetera. Okay, so Mary's thing, though, was she was not getting involved in this disembodied male God type thing, even though the gospel tries to say something like God overshadowed her, right, or the spirit of holy you know, will overshadow you, but really Mary was involved in Parthenogenesis, her mother Anne was involved in Parthenogenesis, there was not a male god involved in this rite, contrary to some of the other Greek and other priestesses who had degenerated the tradition. So Mary is a pure vessel using her own kundalini power, her own eggs and her connection with spirit, her deep, deep womb level training to be able to do this kind of conception. And therefore, she was able to pull in a very high level being.
0: So, I want to s- kind of circle around sexuality for a second because I, modern day, the most of most scholars and and people that are writing on these subjects equate the body and sexuality with the feminine, and so we we talk about the certainly the body matter mater is it, it in and i and I know in different cultures it's it's looked at different ways, but the way I hear it most commonly referred to is that the body and the feminine and so there's something about our modern religious lives that are very repressed when it comes to, uh, you know, one could say it's kind of a puritanical model where we're, we're repressing our bodies, we try to transcend the body, we, we uh, moralize sex and sexuality, we define it into these binaries. And so there's a lot of problems that we're having with sexuality, despite the fact that when I've taught sex and sexuality, one of my favorite quotes that's really tragic and obscene is that in Texas, there are a couple of counties that uh, practice that the schools practice abstinence only in their adoles- in the stage of adolescence. So they teach abstinence only, and in those counties, they they have the highest incidence rate of STDs and teen pregnancy.
1: Right, because good luck with that, right?
0: right. <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. So. So there, there's, there, I want to go back to the dildos. Um, I've talked more about medicated dildos in the past three or four weeks through this podcast than I have in my entire life. It's really been the past like four months. And, and you know, considering it's I read Michael Pollan's quote about this is a Michael Pollan quote from Change, Changing Your Mind or Change Your Mind, this book that came out that is, you know, radical. He's talking about witches and the broomstick and the mythology around the broomstick is that the, the the broomstick was a phallus and the phallus was a dildo and the dildo had medicine on it and the medicine was one of these consciousness expanding medicines right. so
1: why you know why in part because when you take it through the stomach it can make you nauseous so it's better to do it through the some form of skin and the vagina you know it immediately absorbs things so it was very practical in a way um as much as anything else
0: well and the anus from uh right.
1: the uh, right and the male initiates at eleusis were doing that
0: yeah Which...
1: they were, there was an orifice per gender you know well. <laughs> <laughs> Pick yeah. your orifice yeah. To yeah. by and wow. you know i mean This is why I think the Christian writers commenting on the Eleusinian Mysteries are the most useful because they're like, what they do is obscene. It's this and that and the other. I'm like, oh goody, like they're telling us what happened. They're verifying what I've come to, right? Yes, it's obscene by certain, perspectives, right? But they're all involved in a whole tradition that was several thousand years that came through lineages, and they were trained before they even went to the Eleusinian Mysteries in the fall. The previous year, they had had a kind of a rough run training, and I know Brian, you know, references that in his book as well, the lower mysteries, right? Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, and, and there's another example, and this is with Isis, okay? connecting it very much to the divine birth practice. First of all, Isis is another example of an elevated being who walked the planet and she changed ontological status from human to divine because she was able to give birth to Horus in a seemingly counter-biological way. And and here's the story. And also there's another writer and I I have to look up this um, reference but I don't know if it's plato or who it is it's or plutarch says people didn't know whether isis was human or divine you know that's because she was one of those netters or whatever like those beings who walk the planet and um so her story is that and Rudolf steiner believes and i agree that she was a previous incarnation of the woman we know as mary so mary was like trial trial running this thing right but Isis's story is that um, her brother set, um, cut Osiris into many pieces and uh, Isis was able to find all the pieces except for the phallus. So what did she do? She made an artificial phallus. And I don't know if it was a golden phallus, whatever. And it was through that, that guess what? She was able to conceive Horus with Osiris already on the other side of the veil. That is an, uh, an example of parthenogenesis through use of dildo.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, whether there was medicine involved on that dildo, perhaps, we don't know. But um, I just think it's very interesting how the use of this sacred phallus, this lingam, you know, human sized lingam, uh, comes in in these various points where we're talking about the deepest mysteries of all. It's like the phallus and the yoni have to come together for these rituals on some level. and even in the parthenogenesis practice, meaning, you know, the woman gives birth to a version of herself. In the um, the revelation of Adam, that one of the Nagamadi texts, it talks about, one of the muses who goes off to the mountain and she desires herself so as to become pregnant from herself she becomes androgynous and desires herself there is that um activation of the male female duality that will happen in the parthenogenetic woman and this is what we see in some of the animals that you hear about you know every once in a while a lizard Mm -hmm. a shark whatever or some of them that ne- by by nature are parthenogenetic they have to have some aspect of the yoni and the lingam kind of coming together which of course in the end is all the same thing the yoni and the lingam in the fetus it's all from the same tissue right and right. it either extrudes as a phallus or it you know implodes as a vagina
2: mm-hmm.
1: it's it's kind of all the same thing it's a yin yang right so there's like this deep mystery in all of this. And I think that people listening, hopefully they're listening with their third ear open, right? Because we're not, you and I are not talking in a linear way. We're not saying, oh, my book is about this. First, this happened, then that happened, then the history, the, you know, we're going popcorn, do, do, do in a way. And I hope it's kind of waking, you know, opening people's third eye where they go, whoa. Oh my gosh! What is she talking about? Wow! What some of that kind of resonates, or that's fascinating. You know, this is my hope that this just obliquely um, intrigues some people who might be listening to the deeper levels of mystery that, in a way, cannot be spoken.
0: Well, I think simply, simply put, we there's a certain homogen, homogenizing. If that's the right term, sameness. You know, culture, culture on some level is creating some degree of sameness in people. And we can see this in the microcosm of the family system. the 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 parents tend to unconsciously, uh, on some level, consciously on others, enforce, their worldview on their kids. And this isn't all a bad thing. I mean, I need to have an orientation. I need to have a way of being in the world and I need to know how to go out there and become the person that I was created to be. Mm -hmm. But what can often happen is that when my unique expression is coming together with their idea of who I need to be, there's a tension that can be created in that. And if if they're not conscious of what they're doing, they can really, really uh, enact a lot of harm on the developing kid. But if they're able to see that that's a fact, and I pull it back, which is the work that certainly my wife and I do in our own personal lives as parents, is to try to take back our projections and not have to put them onto our kids. Well, let's blow that up into the macro and say that culture's doing that. And it's trying to uh, kind of create the, the uh, fertile ground for adaptation to the cultural desire, uh, which can then create shame and dissonance in the individual or individual groups. So I, I certainly get that you know that there's a there's a there's a, a a pressure to to be a certain way, and and obviously religions have been um, th- throughout time religions have done that they they have enforced some ideal upon us and and I think one of the biggest hits is sexuality. Um, It's certainly sexuality. It's also what I was talking to Brian about and have really been kind of going on about for a while is it's sex, it's drugs, and it's women. And and we can look at what the current power structures are doing. I mean, whether we're talking about women reproductive rights or the war on drugs or, you know, the intolerance of other people's religions, we're seeing it play out right now, which... uh, We don't need to go back in history to go, yeah, this is fucked up and this is happening. Um, I don't know if that's, I'm just kind of aligning with you. I don't know if there's a question there.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, those three things that were hit, women's sexuality and drugs, um, again, from one viewpoint, that was deliberately done, that actually... um, when the, when these negative beings started interfering with our planet, which you hear about in these divine birth stories, which you hear about even in the Bible with the, um, the sons of God who cavorted with the, the daughters of man and gave birth to the Nephilim, these giants, you know, you, you hear these stories of these interdimensional shenanigans. And, um, so, um, there's been, a lot of activity and intervention onto planet earth and what i've been tracking is that um beings who want to kind of negative beings who want to kind of have their way on an edenic planet which is what earth was in my understanding to begin with the first thing they had to go after was the relationship between women and men they had to fracture that and create problems between women and men and distort the sexuality. And then they um, had to disturb anything that could continue to have people connecting with um, the otherworldly realms, the world the, the realms of wonder and mystery and co-creative possibility. So that was you know plants, the drugs. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then women, because they still maintained these powers of seeing and these powers of divine birthing, they had to be tampered with. So all of these things have been tampered with. And, you know, in my belief structure, it's not because of just human nature. Human nature was something completely other, it was a real divine blueprint. And it's because we have been enacted upon in this earth plane over a very long time by these negative interdimensional beings that we are in the intergenerational trauma situation that we are in. And we've so far been disconnected from what was the origin point, except on the part of various seers who are speaking about this that we think this is just kind of normal the way it is and it's like okay well all we need to do is just do a little bit of self love and do a little bit of you know therapy practice and you know and it's just like it's going to be a lot deeper than that like you're going to have to deal with the interdimensional level of what's going on here if this healing is going to happen and if we're going to throw off the shackles and if we are going to restore women's wombs and women's seeing and women's priestessing if we're going to restore the connection with with the, the drugs and the medicine and basically meaning nature and if we are going to restore the sexuality in a healthy way and, and healthy male female relationships so that it's it's a wonder to be together and not a war
0: yeah i mean i think pleasure is certainly a part of that that and i uh, catch me on this because i'm wondering I'm wondering at some point, don't isn't there a battle between worldviews, yeah. like like the hedonic worldview, the one that seeks pleasure and, you know, kind of I can do whatever I want whenever I want it. You can't live like that. You can't live in a culture together where I'm just setting my own pleasure and transcendence. I mean, I can't. I I have to think there's some kind of some kind of wisdom on some level where we've been evolving. I mean. There, at some, I mean, I love maybe last week I was talking to Dr. Ruck about the St. Paul saying, "You guys are doing this Eucharist wrong, man. You're 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 abusing it. You know, you've gone into recreational drug use, and it's a little like what happened in the '60s, which is what everybody was scared about. What Timothy Leary was saying is that, man, you drop it in the water supply, people are going to go crazy, and so we need some kind of balance between." pleasure and spirituality and living on the earth and you know suiting up and showing up and doing things maybe that I don't feel like doing. Right. Any any thoughts?
1: Yeah, well, you know, it, everything got split into duality in this plane. So it got split into, you know, either hedonistic pleasure or right. um what what would you call it? I mean, parsimonious non-sexuality, right? <laughs> But okay but of course you want you know you want the yin yang to come together it it has to balance it you you don't want to be at one end of the thing or the other we we have to come together um the yin yang the opposites are contained within that whole which is a womb you know that that structure of the circle is the womb of, of mother creator she is the one that actually contains and okayed, you know, the creation of all of these negative things as well, because she gave free will. She's the parthenogenetic universal creatrix.
0: Well, let and- me think out loud for a second. Cause I, I, there's a lot in my experience that I don't have, you know, that I haven't been able to, uh, you know and I, I lean on William Blake here where there's plenty with this eye that I haven't seen, but I I certainly haven't. I I certainly keep asking these questions, and I've I've built a lot of my life around being in a pretty inspirited place. But when when talk of kind of interdimensional beings comes up, you know, I say, okay, what the hell is this? You know. So when I'm thinking out loud, not only do I have that part of me that's like, well, c- come on, like, what are we talking about here? But then I think about the way i probably would have been thinking when there was a shift between what we currently call classical newtonian physics and quantum physics and the 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 word quantum is used a lot you know people tend to like quantum is this signifier for a kind of another dimension or or whatever we but i i do know that on some level if i take some proton and i'm spinning it in a certain direction and the sister proton or neutron or whatever, a hundred kilometers away, start spinning the same direction I change the axis on. Like, that's weird shit. And I don't understand that. And I, so I at least can kind of go, okay, I have to, I have, to have faith here that there are, there are plenty of things in this world that I can't see, touch, feel, taste, know, measure, and understand given my consciousness. But how do you get into this? Because this is blowing my mind.
1: And they're acting on it all the time, acting on us all the time. I mean, quantum physics is spirituality's best friend. Because as what it's going to unfold gets weirder and weirder, you're going to realize, whoa, they're talking about dimensional shifts and time anomalies and matter spirit interface and oh my gosh this is going to be our the common person's entree into this stuff Mm -hmm. and again a lot of people are accessing this through sacred medicines or other kinds of states right so that you you can see it you can know it you can experience it and i would you know to bring it back to mother mary i believe (laughs) that she was working on the quantum level when she conceived jesus there was a whole ritual that was set forth um, that she was involved in that involved seven other women uh, at the same time and she's the one who ended up conceiving and elizabeth her as it turns out aunt her who, who conceived john the baptist they were working with the light matter womb spirit interface in unbelievable ways and this is why you have the entry of the quote archangel gabriel into the process because there were interdimensional beings assisting with this practice it wasn't just the woman kind of trying to figure it out all herself she was opening up into this, this other domain and the there were these high level beings angelics helping that's well, why you- that's why we have the archangel gabriel you know it, it's just another way of looking at Why is the Archangel Gabriel there, you know? Um, As more than just a little sweet kind of story, like, oh, the Archangel Gabriel, you know? It's like, whoa, holy crap, like a whole huge technology was going on here, a quantum level.
0: How do you get around... So the way in which people were writing then, let's say these, these texts my understanding is it's not the same kind of imaginative space that we tend to write in or from today. So how do you get around the interpretation problem, which is, are these texts literally true or are they mythically true? And if we try to apply kind of scientific rational truth today to texts, like how does that make sense to you?
1: Well, just looking at the infancy gospel of James slash birth of Mary, that particular text, like when you read it just straight on, which it's at the end of my book, it's, it's like, oh, okay. Well, that's interesting. It kind of chronicles a story here. But when I bored down into each word and phrase, and I showed what was going on and, and, and the symbols and everything, Um, what I realized was that this writer was actually very mystical. I mean, he was privy to some things. Otherwise, why would he have been talking about the laurel tree? Um, Otherwise, you know, why would he have been talking about any of these other symbols and events that happened? Why was he talking about that Anne had to put on her wedding dress before she conceived Mary, right? You know, these things. Like, this was a person who used spoke parsimoniously you know with few words but conveyed a ton of information so i think that this person was schooled to some degree in the mysteries this was just the way it was expressed and what i can say is that there's this one section of this gospel that's completely wild out there mystical he describes a situation that joseph has he's left mary in the cave she's giving birth, but she needs a midwife. So he's going, looking all over the countryside to find a midwife. And in the middle of this, probably because he's hot, who knows if he's had enough water, whatever, under the hot sun, he goes into an altered state of consciousness. And it is the wildest thing to read it. Now, if you just read it going, that is just so weird. But if you really penetrate into what he's saying, it's like, oh my God, he's giving you this mystical revelation of Joseph Joseph's mind got opened, and he saw people. He saw time and space going into this quantum physics anomalous situation where he saw people moving and not moving at the same time, eating and not eating at the same time. Um, you know, I mean, it's it's just this wild, wild thing. So he he went into it right without drugs. So things like that are very mystical on the part of these older authors, you know,
2: mm-hmm. and,
1: and even um, there are some of the other writers. Um, is it Josephus? Um, not Josephus, but there's another ancient Hebrew writer. Uh, uh, it'll come to me. I don't know why I always blank out on his name. He's talking about these deep mysteries with these Hebrew women saying that basically they were all virgin birth priestesses, you know, how did he how did he know about that? So these people have been accessing, and even, you know, the mystical encounters that we have in the Bible of these guys who go into these (laughs) altered state of experiences and what they're describing. So it's always been there. It's been there throughout time in all of these texts. And that's, that's that's the, sorry, go on. That's where I come in on this particular text with Mary, where I, I look at what it's actually saying you know, from the perspective of a woman who has opened into fifth dimensional consciousness and can understand and can bring forth more information for people who may not be privy to that. That's the whole point of the book. And to say, Mary actually did this. And thinking people can understand that she gave a divine birth. This is how she did it. This is what was involved. These were the consequences. This is what she endured, et cetera.
0: Yeah, I guess that's part of the interesting piece is that when I read those texts, I have a part of my mind that's wondering what is literally, you know, measurably true and what is mystically true or mythically true. And I, I what I try to tell myself is it doesn't matter. Right. You know, it. But that's kind of what I'm... Getting into when I start talking to people who actually can translate text, who actually know history, who actually know the classics, there seems to be a a, a more porous and um, I seem to be in in a lot of my preconceived notions I seem to be a little wrong over what was literally true and what was not or what was mythically true, and and that that continues to really blow my mind. So I get I do get. I have that doubting part of me that's like, why why do we have to define what is measurably or, um, I think I say measurably because I want to use like the scientific rational mind, like if you can see it, taste it, touch it, feel it, measure it, then it's quote true, or the mythic mindset, which would say something like, no, I mean, there are truths that can be communicated by uh, means that aren't related to a rational measurable truth.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But and that that the interesting thing that you do in your book is you talk about um, the the immaculate conception as something that can be manifested measurably conception measurably through a process of initiating a woman into a tradition where she has gone through years and years of training and then she can give birth to this human human child. That's right. Which, again, blows my mind. Uh, But we do see it in nature. I just, I don't have enough training in the world of biology to know what the hell I'm talking about there.
1: Yeah, there are some creatures that do it, and there are some creatures that could be induced to do it. Be that as it may, though, we are talking here about a spiritual process, practice, training, where you're bringing spirit into matter, which happens every time a woman conceives anyway. But this is just a different mechanism by which spirit comes into the flesh. It's just an alternate mechanism that allows, because of its technology, it allows for a different vibrational being to come in than perhaps the ordinary child, even though there are many extraordinary children coming in through regular intercourse and one would could say all children are extraordinary Mm -hmm. but we're talking about degrees of masterhood that a being will come in with already degrees of uh awareness and awakeness that a being will come in with and christ came in very awake mary herself came in very awake um even though they both had to learn and be trained during their lives they did not have to go through quite the levels of breaking the barnacles off that most of us do uh, in order to you know, be able to open our consciousness. And you know, I, again, I go back to Jung where I think he was trying to toe the line in the scientific world, even though he broke from uh, Freud early on because he was way too mystical and out there. I think he was still trying to have some level of scientific credibility. That's why that red book did not come out. You know, the red book is the red pill. Yeah. Okay, you know, it did not come out until after he died because he knew that it would just destroy his reputation or whatever, because he was showing that he was integrated. He was integrated between this dimension and the other dimension. And sometimes it was really uncomfortable for him to know, you know, maintain his bodily integrity or his even his his sanity but he did somehow he was somehow able to do that and i think a lot of us are awakening and we're we're trying to maintain our bodily integrity and our ego consciousness while also opening to these other possibilities and uh things that seem counter three-dimensional counter biological um counter material newtonian physics rules right and so um these priestesses have always been connected with these realms just like shamans all over the world are the dreaming the dream time people in australia you know the aboriginals Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. all the shamans all over i mean of course this is why they had to be attacked and and decimated the native americans you know there was once deep, deep connectivity uh, with these other realms.
0: Well, that gets off into an amazing conversation, actually. It's
1: an amazing conversation. I mean, you know, I I hope this is interesting to to your people. We are going through um, many different zones of this. Uh, You know, I think that what my new book is all about and really what all my books are about is again this interface of human divine what does it mean how do we bring different orders of beings into the planet how do we bring ourselves to the level of becoming that different order of being you see because jesus and mary as i see it they were not here to be worshipped they were here to be modeled They were here for us to match their vibration, come up to their vibration, whatever that meant in in various different ways, but as a means, not as a morality story, but as a means of coming into our own full divine blueprint nature. That's, I think, what we're all about. And we're on the threshold of at this crisis time right now.
0: Well, I know that anytime we... We got about fifteen more minutes, so I want to be conscientious of being able to close out and give you the opportunity to direct anybody listening or watching to wherever you would like to direct them. But I I, I know the act of writing us uh, writing a book is is something that there's a there's a reason why mystics have tend to tended to write things down. So there's some kind of discovery. I'm curious what you experienced or discovered through writing this book in particular.
1: Well, this really opened the door to me uh, about who Mary is, who Mary was, and who Mary shall be in my life and the life of other people. As an exemplar of a female who is at her most elevated peak, a priestess who was full throttle on every, you know, every cylinder was functioning for her. So it began a new relationship that I could have with Mary by applying the research that, that I had already done, you know, to her domain. Of course, when I started on researching on virgin birth, of course, Mary was really automatically there, Right, but, um, it's taken, you know, a decade before things have been right for me to write this book about Mary. It was one thing to write about uh, ancient Greece, but now Mary. And it's sort of corresponding with this whole worldwide movement of the exaltation of women and, you know, uh, restoring women to their rightful places as as priestesses. So, it's been you know far more than an intellectual exercise for me although i love that you know i I love to do all those calisthenics those intellectual you know i've got my intellectual chops i mean i have my phd and and so forth i know how to analyze this that and the other thing Uh, but um but this project was in a way an integration project for me and and like i said my next book will be even further the further explorations of mother mary as a mentor um, but I think this piece needed to get out there first, to establish Mary as a real bona fide pract- practitioner of virgin birth, f- to present an argument that thinking people could get with, could explore, could look at. And it's just been fascinating for me, a fascinating process. I mean, I loved it. You know, I wrote this book very quickly in a matter of four or five months and just in kind of a (laughs) static state, just, wow, you know? And I would be, I thought that I had gone through it all and knew what I was gonna say, but even more would come through as I was going through the writing process. You know, I was essentially, you know, opening to those intuitional realms and more was pouring through. So that's a little bit about what the experience has been like for me and has meant to me, you know, this, this whole excursion for me into divine birth has been quite ecstatic because it would really open my consciousness. And, And that in and of itself has been a kind of an erotic experience. I mean, all while I was writing, you know, starting back in 2003, when I really started investigating divine birth in a serious way. And I would go through the, the research and the books and have carts of books coming back and forth from the library Mm. and I would be intellectually writing and then I would receive all these downpours, right? So it was this figure eight process, intellectual, intuitional. Sometimes I would literally have to lie down on my office floor just to breathe and integrate it all going. This is so enormous Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and the implications are so enormous and the implications of this book are so enormous because of course, this is not just about mother Mary. And as I write a little bit in my introduction, this is about what's possible for any woman who wants to go on this type of a holy womb path for the purposes, perhaps, of bringing in a higher level avatar to the planet. So I know of women. And as I write about at the beginning of the book, I know of one woman who did conceive spontaneously. There's a whole story with that. I know of other women who have conceived through various means, right? So this is something, this is real. This is, there is a possibility here. And this is a new technology that we need to open up and unfold again, that, that conscious, ethical women need to return to. And it's a tradition that of course needs to be protected.
0: Thank you for writing it. Because I... What I hear in what you just said about the process you know we tend i tend to say this in circles of friends and colleagues is the divine conception of writing a book right. of creating a song of of the act of creation itself is is on one level what we're talking about, and you know as somebody who's written a dissertation it it feels like giving birth my you know in a in a spiritual, intellectual kind. I am not some guy who's saying, I can imagine what it feels like to give birth, but I can certainly, I know what it feels like to create something and give birth to that. And
1: yes, because ultimately it's really about the, the entire creative process itself, whether it's a physical conception, whether it's a conception of a project and a manifestation of a project, whatever level of creativity you wanna talk about. Yeah, it is, it is creativity at its apex in a way when it comes to divine birth, because it's really literalizing spirit into material form in the human flesh. And that's a pretty big feat.
0: Yeah, it sure is. Well, so where do you wanna send people?
1: All right, well, so I am the director of Seven Sisters Mystery School, and that is an enterprise that has various courses online. I have one that would be very interesting to if people want to go deeper into mother Mary and it's called the mother Mary mystery teachings. And then I have another one called the divine birth mysteries audio series, which is kind of that backstory summary of my first two books in a very digestible, fascinating form and entertaining. Um, And then there's another one on the Holy womb chakra teachings, which the Holy womb, that's a whole other study and um, I provide ancient methods of activating and purifying the womb, which would be part of the steps along the way to anybody Mm -hmm. who wants to have a divine child, either conceiving one with a man or eventually conceiving one parthenogenetically. So, you know, people can explore around on my site and there are many free offerings. I also uh, give one-on-one sessions and I will be continuing to teach on into the future and if you really want that wild wild uh up to the minute next level teaching i have a course called accelerating into fifth dimensional consciousness so that's for the real uh cosmonauts i would say <laughs>
0: say, say your website real quick what is it
1: seven sisters mysteryschool.com
0: great and i'll put it in the uh, look below in the resources and liner notes And I I enjoyed your books. This is, this is a a treat. You know, I want to thank Brian Murescu for hooking us up. And apparently we we are all going to celebrate together one day. Oh yeah.
1: So uh, let it be so. so. Yes. yes. Marguerite,
0: thank you for being here.
1: Thank you so much for having me, John.
2: controls your dreams Persuade